The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. All right, well, good morning, everyone. I am so excited. We are launching into a brand new sermon series today. We're calling it The Joshua Generation. The Lord has been ministering to me for some time now through the life of this fascinating individual that we read about in the scriptures. And he's finally released me to share what he's speaking to me about with all of you. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Exodus chapter 17. The title of my message for you this morning is The Power of Prayer. And we're going to learn about prayer through the life of this man named Joshua, who to me is one of the most fascinating characters in all of the Bible. I mean, consider just the arc of this man's story, where he started and where he ended up. His story begins as a slave, and and, and he was born a slave in Egypt, and then as time progresses, he becomes a spy. Then he assumes the role of a personal assistant to Moses. He eventually becomes the general of the Israeli army, and ultimately he is thrust into this position of leadership where he is tasked to lead the nation of Israel. In addition to that, he had front row seats for some of the greatest events in human history. He saw the exodus from Egypt and participated in that, as well as the conquest of Canaan. He saw the waters of the Red Sea part and led the Israelites through the Jordan River at flood stage. He camped under the cloud of God's presence and was warmed by the fire of God's glory at night. He tasted the heavenly manna in the wilderness and drank water that flowed from a rock. He was there when God gave the Ten Commandments and saw the walls of Jericho come tumbling down. I mean, I think you'd agree with me when I say, that's an impressive resume. (laughs) And I'd forgive you for thinking that you have nothing in common with a guy like Joshua. And yet, if that's what you're thinking, you're wrong. There's so much that we can glean and that God wants us to to learn from this man of God. Over the several weeks that we spend in this series, you're going to learn from Joshua how to navigate life's inevitable transitions, how to resist peer pressure. He's going to show us what it takes to lead effectively. He's going to model how to walk in victory, and he's going to demonstrate for us how we can move forward in confident faith even when our hearts are filled with fear. So today, as we get started and kick things off, we're going to go all the way back to the very beginning of Joshua's story to see what we can learn from him. And and let me just set the context for the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning. At this point in their journey, Israel has just been delivered from 400 years of bondage and slavery there in Egypt. And God has led them through the Red Sea. And and once they're in the wilderness, he's leading them uh, to Mount Sinai, where they're going to receive the law of the Lord. But on their way there, they find themselves in a wilderness region. And God instructs Moses to hit a rock with his staff. And when he does that, water pours out of the rock to meet the people's needs. This story 
story that we're about to read happens on the, uh, in the aftermath of all those events I just described. So with that, let's go ahead and get into our text there in verse 8 of Exodus 17. Here's what it says. The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. You can stop there. I want to talk to you for a moment about what you should do when the enemy attacks. The Israelites, I'm imagining, were probably looking forward to a bit of R&R, rest and relaxation, as they pulled up to Rephidim. As a matter of fact, the word Rephidim literally means place of rest. And as they were scouring the map and looking for places to camp, they found Rephidim and they thought, ah, this is it. This is exactly what we need. I mean, already at this early juncture in their experience as a free people, they've been through a lot. And so they needed some rejuvenation. They needed some rest. They needed some downtime to recover. Unfortunately, their rest was short-lived because as soon as they landed there, the enemy attacked them. Now, in this case, the enemy that attacks is the Amalekites. Now, who were the Amalekites? Well, they were of the lineage and descendants of a man named Esau. Some of you will remember Esau from your Bible reading. He shows up in the book of Genesis. He was the brother of Jacob, and he's the guy who sold his birthright, the birthright, this blessing from the father that comes from God upon the individual. He sold that to his brother Jacob for a bowl of stew. And he typifies the person who is driven and consumed by the passions of their flesh. Now his descendants become the Amalekites and they had grown into a formidable tribe of nomads who made their living by raiding caravans who were traveling through the southern region of Canaan. And in this instance, the unlucky people to, to face their wrath were the Israelites. They ambushed them when they least expected it. Now, the fact that the Amalekites ambushed Israel at their most vulnerable moment, that's bad enough. But there's a particular way that they attacked them that made things far worse. And Moses tells us about it. You see, years after these events transpired, Moses writes down as he reflects on the heinous nature of the Amalekites' attack. And here's what he adds. And he gives us some color, adds some insight. Let's read this together. This is Deuteronomy 25, 17. Remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt, when you were weary and worn out. They met you on your journey and attacked all who were lagging behind. They had no fear of God. Notice whom the enemy targets in this attack. He goes after the weary and the worn out, those who were tired, those who are lagging behind. And don't you know, we have an enemy who does the exact same thing with us. Have you ever found that the enemy likes to prey on your weaknesses? He knows exactly what buttons to push, and he seeks to exploit your frailties. Peter said it like this in his first epistle. This is 1 Peter 5.8. He said, be careful. Be on watch. Why? Because our adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, and he's looking for people to devour. And who does the devil like to pick off? It's the worn out and the weary, the tired, those who are lagging behind. I love watching animal shows, Animal Planet, Discovery Channel, all of these 
things. And, and if you've ever watched, you know, a, a pride of lions as they hunt a, a herd of gazelle or whatever, it's always the gazelle that lags behind, the one that's injured, the, the young or the infirmed that the lions tend to go after. And that's exactly what the devil does to us. He waits until you're weary, bone tired, worn down by life. And that's when he ambushes. And have you ever noticed this? He's relentless too in his attacks. I was just talking with a friend recently and and they just find themselves in one of those seasons that's way too familiar to many of us where it just feels like the hits keep coming. He says to me, when am I gonna get a break? You ever been there? Sometimes it feels like you claw and scratch your way to the surface of the water only to grab a gulp of air before the next set comes bearing down on you. You survive one battle only to find yourself having to fight for survival all over again. That's where the Israelites were at. So the question is, what should you do and how should you respond when the enemy attacks? And we find the answer in verse nine. Moses said to Joshua, Choose some of our men, and then I want you to note this phrase, and go out to fight. Somebody say, it's time to fight. It's time to fight. He says, choose some men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow, I'll stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. The word of the Lord through Moses to Joshua back then is the word of the Lord to many of us today. It's time to stand up and fight. I think that the church needs to regularly be reminded of the fact that the Christian life is not a picnic, nor is it a stroll through a park, just kind of a leisurely afternoon, a sunny Sunday afternoon. No, the Christian life at its essence, at its core, is a battle. And this imagery of warfare is something that weaves its way throughout the whole of Scripture, and particularly in the New Testament, like a thread. It's why Paul told Timothy to fight the good fight of faith and endure suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ and to wage warfare in the spiritual realm. Let me tell you something, Christian. If you're going to follow Christ, then you better prepare yourself for a fight. You say, when do I get a break? When you get to heaven, (laughs) okay? But between now and then, just expect the battles to keep coming. Now, to lead this fight, Moses taps a man named Joshua on the shoulders. Now, here's where we first get introduced to Joshua. We don't read of him prior to this. Now, why did Moses select him to lead the army? I mean, did he have some kind of military background? And the answer is perhaps. We know that, as I mentioned, Joshua was born a slave in Egypt. However, gifted slaves in Egyptian society could train with and even fight in the military, and those who were among the best could rise in the ranks. I got that from the Zondervan Encyclopedia. Now, maybe that's why Moses picked him. We can't say for sure, but here's one thing we know for for certain. Joshua didn't have much to work with. He had less than 24 hours to assemble an army from this ragtag group of survivors. I mean, the Israelites were disadvantaged in, disadvantaged in every conceivable way. They were more familiar with being a slave than they were with being a soldier. 
They had no weapons or battlefield experience to speak of. They're traveling with the elderly women and children. Meanwhile, their counterparts, the Amalekites, were well-versed in the art of warfare. One of the commentaries I was reading suggested that in addition to weapons and experience, the Amalekites also had another distinct advantage. They were known for having camels. You say, what's the big deal about that? How did that give them any kind of advantage? Well, listen, in ancient times, camels were the equivalent of our modern day like fighting vehicles. Think of a, a Bradley fighting vehicle or a Humvee. And I say that for this reason. Camels are really fast. They could run in excess of 45 miles an hour. That's faster than a horse. And this would have given them a huge advantage over the Israelites on the battlefield. In other words, Israel didn't stand a chance from a physical or military perspective. However, they had one thing that their enemies didn't. What is it? Well, Moses tells Joshua, I'll stand on the hill with the staff of God in my hands. He's careful to point that out to this newly appointed general. Why would he tell him that? Because he wants to infuse him with confidence. He, he says, look at it. It's the staff of God. And they're like, oh, yeah. I mean, keep in mind, this is no ordinary stick that Moses is holding. This is the same staff that Moses had thrown to the ground, and it became a serpent in Pharaoh's court. The same staff that God used to bring a series of judgments on the Egyptian people. The same staff that he stretched out over the Red Sea and the waters parted. The same staff that Joshua had just seen Moses strike a rock with and out of that rock comes water. I mean, this was a, a powerful stick. Now, mind you, there was nothing magical about this staff. I mean, it was just a, just a shepherd's staff. It wasn't imbued with mystical, magical properties. It's what it represented that made all the difference. And what that staff represented was the power and the abiding presence of Almighty God. And so Moses tells Joshua this because he wants him to know, you're going to go into the fight tomorrow, but you won't be fighting alone. There's a God in heaven who fights your battles for you. So while the Amalekites might have superior weaponry and they might have camels, Joshua, Joshua, you can have the confidence of knowing that God is on your side. And can I just say that makes all the difference. And what Moses told to Joshua is equally true for every one of us. While it's true that this world and this life is going to be marked and characterized by battle after battle after battle, battles in the home, battles in the workplace, battles in your relationships, battles in your career, battles in the spiritual arena, it's true that you're going to have to fight battles, but you need to know that the Lord fights the battles for you. And it doesn't matter who comes against you if God stands behind you, amen? That's what Paul tells us in Romans 8.31. He says, if God is for us, then who, matter, who, who can stand against us? I mean, you're coming against me, but you're really fighting the Lord. Praise the Lord. And so we're going to see now in a specific way how God brings the victory to Joshua and the Israelites. Look at verse 10. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered. And Moses and Aaron and Hur went to the top of the hill. And as long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. Now, when Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and they put it under him and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side and one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till the sun set. 
And so Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. We need to talk for a moment about this secret weapon that the Lord has given to his children that we can use in the fight. I'm talking about the power of prayer. There are weapons that God has given you that are at your disposal. They're part of your arsenal that the Lord wants you to use in your fight against the enemy. Now, mind you, these weapons aren't physical in nature. They're not carnal, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 10.4. He says they're not AK-47s. They're not tanks. They're not missiles. But the weapons we fight with are mighty in God to pull down strongholds, to defeat every enemy, every attack. Now, one of our greatest weapons is prayer. And that's what this scene depicts. Prayer is, again, our secret weapon in the fight against the enemy. And I can picture Joshua. Just go back in your mind's eye and, and, and allow the scene to unfold before you. And there he is in the midst of the fight. And from time to time, when there's a lull in the battle, he can look up through the fog of war and there, silhouetted against the, the setting sun, he can see the image of Moses standing on the hill with his outstretched arms, the staff of God resting in his hands. And it gives him confidence. However, as the story plays out, something interesting happens. The, the battle takes longer than they anticipated, and so Moses' arms become tired, and they begin to recognize that every time Moses' arms drop down because of fatigue, the enemy gains the upper hand. Now, here's the question. <laughs> Why on earth would God allow the position of Moses' arms to in any way impact or affect the outcome of the battle. I would suggest to you it's because the Lord wanted to teach and instill in Joshua, who would become the future leader of the Israelites, the one who would lead them in many battles as they made their way into the promised land. He needed to instill within this future leader of Israel the value, the priority, and the power of prayer. You see, you'll find many different postures of prayer described in the Bible. You'll see people kneeling and, and people bowing in prayer. You'll, be, you'll find people standing and even lying prostrate in prayer. And incidentally, the one posture you never see is people closing their eyes and folding their hands. That was something some Sunday school teacher came up with to keep you know, the kids from messing with each other during prayer. But there's another common posture that we see for prayer in Scripture, and that is the lifting up of hands. Paul talks about it in his letter to Timothy. I want to read this verse together with you out loud. It's 1 Timothy 2a. In every place of worship, I want men to pray with holy hands lifted up to God, free from anger and controversy. You say, I don't know if I'm qualified to do that. My hands are far from holy, Pastor. Listen. You have been washed, you have been sanctified, you have been cleansed through the blood of Jesus. So when you lift your hands in prayer, they are holy hands. Say praise the Lord. All right, so he says, I want you to lift your hands. Now, why would they do this? What is the significance of this posture? Well, let me offer three, uh, you know, things for your consideration. First, it is a sign of surrender when you lift your hands. What does a cop say to a robber when he catches him in the act and he pulls out his gun and he says, freeze, and he says, Raise your arms. It's a sign of surrender. 
Not only that, it's also an act of praise. You know how it is when you're watching your favorite football team later this afternoon or you're at a game and they score a touchdown. Involuntarily, when your team scores, your arms go up in praise and in celebration. And then thirdly, it's a sign of dependence. Think about a kid who wants to be picked up and their, their mom or dad walks in the front door and when my kids were little, they would run up to me and they would just hold up their arms as a sign of, Daddy, I want you to pick me up. And when we lift our hands in prayer, it symbolizes all these things. But in addition to this important posture of prayer, it also speaks of a particular kind of prayer. You see, there are all different forms of prayer that you find in scripture. You find things like adoration, confession, supplication, and thanksgiving, just to name a few. But, but none of those describe the kind of prayer praying that Moses is doing in this scene. This scene depicts intercessory prayer. And I want to talk for a moment about intercessory prayer. What is it? Quite simply, intercessory prayer is when you begin to pray for others. And it is quite possibly the most powerful form of prayer that exists. When you intercede on someone else's behalf, you are in essence stepping onto the battlefield and waging war for that person in the spiritual arena. Now, we don't do enough of this. And I think part of the reason is because in our heart of hearts, we're not really sure that prayer impacts things that it really changes things, that it makes any kind of difference at all. So we might go through the motions and we might say our prayers. And, and if I ask you, if you pray, all, every hand would go up. And we understand the value of prayer in that regard. But, but we don't really engage in the spiritual fight too often because we're like, I don't know, God's going to do what he's going to do anyways. A story helps to illustrate the point. There's this bar in Mount Vernon, Texas that wanted to add on to their existing building and they just so happened to be located right next to a Baptist church who didn't want the bar to expand business. And so they began to hold prayer gatherings where they were praying in opposition to what the bar owner was trying to do. And then, as fate would have it, a week before the grand opening of the new addition to the bar, lightning strikes the bar and sets the whole building on fire and it burns to the ground. Much to the chagrin, of course, of the bar owner who went on to sue the church for the destruction of his property. Of course, the church denied any and all involvement in what took place. And so eventually the case found its way to court. After reading carefully through the plaintiff's complaint and the defendant's reply, the judge opened the, his ruling by stating, this is a tough one. I don't know how I'm going to decide this case, but one thing's clear. We have a bar owner who believes in the power of prayer and a church that doesn't. <laughs> but for anyone who's ever wrestled with or doubted the efficacy of prayer, the difference that prayer makes, can I just bring you back to the story we just read? Think for a moment about what hung in the balance with Moses' prayers. And this is the part of the sermon that just wrecked me this past week. 
I mean, it's not just the outcome of this battle that we're talking about. It was far bigger than that. Israel in this fight is fighting for their very survival. I mean, think about it. The fate of an entire nation and people group hinged on the fervency of one man's prayers. The very course of history was shaped by Moses' prayer life. If that doesn't underscore the impact and the importance of prayer, I don't know what will. I mean, what if you knew beyond any shadow of a doubt that your prayers could change the outcome of situations, that your prayers could impact communities, that your prayers could affect atmospheres, that your prayers could determine or shape in some way what takes place at a national or even governmental level? What if you knew that your prayers could alter the course of history? How would that change how you pray? Or let's personalize it. What if you knew that you could alter the course of your family history, the trajectory of your family line through the fervency of your prayers? What if you knew that you could determine the outcome of the battles your kids will face at school tomorrow morning, the peer pressure they're going to face, the temptation they're going to face, the onslaught of the enemy? What if you knew that you knew that you knew that it all hinged on the fervency of your prayer life? Well, I think this story is here to teach us that our prayers have a huge say on how those things play out. You see, when you get to Ephesians 6, which is Paul's treatise on spiritual warfare, I don't think it's coincidental that he ends his remarks in that chapter that deals with spiritual warfare by saying this. This is Ephesians 6, 18 and 19. Let's go ahead and read this together out loud. And pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests with this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel. This passage that we just read from is widely considered to be the preeminent text on spiritual warfare in the New Testament. So what is Paul's concluding thesis statement to those who find themselves engaged in the battle, he says, pray, and then pray again. How many times did the word prayer show up in those verses? And pray some more, and pray all kinds of prayers, and pray in the spirit, and pray for one another, and pray for me. I saw a sign recently that I think captured well the, the value of, of prayer and what I'm trying to communicate, and the sign said, when life gets too hard to stand, try kneeling. <laughs> well put. Paul knew well the power of prayer. He'd seen it and its effects play out in his story over and over again. You know, someone else who knows a lot about prayer and, and believes in the power of prayer? The devil. That's right. The devil knows how effective your prayer life is, which is why he works so hard to keep us from praying. You ever noticed how, you know, you can be doing a million things and there's no distractions, but you sit down and you start praying for five minutes and it's like you're bombarded with distractions. You're wide awake, you start to pray and suddenly you find that your eyes are falling, you're half-masked and you're ready to nod off. Why is that? Again, it's because there's a battle that is taking place in the spiritual realm. I love the quote that says, Satan trembles when he sees even the weakest saint fall to their knees. 
Here's a great test to help you see or determine where your prayer life is at. I was thinking about this just last night. What if God suddenly answered every prayer that you've prayed for the past seven days? Would our world look any different? That's, that's, that one stings a little bit. What is the scope of my prayer life? And I, am I praying big prayers that honor the big God that we love and serve and worship? In this story, we see not only the incredibly powerful aspect of intercessory prayer, but it also highlights something else for us. It shows us how exhausting prayer can be. You can only lift your hands for so long before they become tired and they give out. They start to fall. And that's why the story highlights the need for building a team of prayer partners. You see, luckily for Moses, he didn't go into this fight alone. And you shouldn't be fighting your spiritual battles alone either. Moses had Aaron and her. And I would suggest that you build a prayer team that includes a couple of hims and a couple of hers. We need them all. We need prayer partners. Why? So that when our arms are faltering, they can lead you to the rock. Who's the rock? It's Jesus. And then you can rest on him. And then they can come under you. They can support you and help lift your arms. Jesus said, men ought always to pray and not to faint. Now, it's interesting that he would say that because as I, as I survey the landscape of the world today, what I see everywhere is people giving up on prayer and fainting. We're anxious. We're, 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 we're grief-stricken. We're just overwhelmed by life. Well, perhaps we'd see more praying and less fainting if we had more people surrounding us who can lift our arms when we feel weak. Christianity and prayer are not solo sports. They are team efforts. Another story to help illustrate the point, Charles Spurgeon is one of my favorite preachers. He was the golden-tongued minister, and he was one of the most influential and famous preachers from the 19th century. And and, and he ministered in a time before there were microphones and amplification, yet weekly, upwards of 10,000 people would come to the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, England, where he preached to hear his sermons. The, the local newspapers would even write out his sermons and include them in the weekly paper. Think about that. Well, he had a number of guests, as you might imagine, and there were these aspiring young ministers who were in seminary, and they came to, to hear Spurgeon preach, and, and one of the young men asked him, what's the secret to the powerful sermons you preach in the pulpit every week? And instead of responding to the man's question, he took them on a tour, and he led them down into the basement of the church where he quietly opened a door that revealed hundreds of people fervently praying on their knees, crying out for God's grace and mercy to be poured out in that morning's message. And he said, gentlemen, this is my boiler room. The boiler room is the factory. It's, it's where the power is produced. And Spurgeon, oh, a man of faith, he rightly understood that the powerful sermons he preached were a direct result of the prayers that were being offered on his behalf in the basement below. And I'll just say this. We have teams of people that are praying right now. They pray during each one of our services. They pray before the service. They pray throughout the week. They come in here. They pray over the pews. You might be sitting in one of those blessed 
spots where, where our prayer teams have laid hands and, and you're hearing the Lord. You're being ministered to in this moment. God is redeeming things. He's healing things. He's showing you things. He's opening your eyes and, and we see it all the time. People get saved here, healed here, transformed here and it's because of the prayers of God's people. We need to be a church that prays. Can somebody say amen? And by the way, I can feel my arms being lifted up on the strength of those prayers. You need to have that as well. And that's ultimately what caused Joshua to win in the fight. Once Aaron and Hur held his hands up, look at the end of verse 12. It says, so that his hands remained steady till sunset and Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. This book is the sword of the spirit. It's a double-edged sword and we go, into the fight with the enemy, holding the sword in our hands, but we recognize the power of prayer to bring down every foe. You see, the sword might have been in Joshua's hand, but it was the staff of God and the prayers of Moses that wrought the victory that day. Joshua still had to fight. You're not passive in this battle. You have to engage the enemy, but the battle belongs to the Lord. And that's what we finish with this morning in verses 14 through 16. It says, then the Lord said to Moses, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered. And look at this. Make sure Joshua hears it because I'll completely blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. So Moses built an altar, and he called it, the Lord is my banner. And he said, because hands were lifted up against the throne of the Lord, the Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. Notice with me, the Lord is insistent that his servant Moses write this down. Why does he want him to write it down? He says, I want you to write it down and then read it. Read it to Joshua. Make sure it's part of his nightly bedtime routine to read this story. Why? He wants him to continually recount the events of this battle because it would ultimately prove to be kind of the, the standard of how every battle he would go on to face would be won or lost. Every battle you fight will be won or lost. It will be determined in your prayer closet. Here's how the Proverbs say it. This is Proverbs 21, 31. Read this together with me out loud. The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but victory rests with the Lord. Can we say this together out loud? Say, the battle belongs to the Lord. But now say this, I still have to fight. <laughs> See, your job is to get the horse ready. You get the horse ready for battle. You arm yourself with the sword. You go into the fight, but you look to the hill and remember that the victory comes from the Lord. And so to commemorate this powerful moment in the early history of God's people, Moses builds an altar. It's a place of consecration, a place of devotion, a place of worship. And he calls on the Lord by a new name. He calls him Jehovah Nisi, which means the Lord is my banner. Now, what is that all about? Well, in ancient times, much like modern days, banners served a couple of different purposes. So a banner, it spoke of two things that I want to mention. It spoke of identity, and it reminded people of victory. Identity and victory. How so? 
Well, in a battle, you would raise a banner and you would say, that's where my people belong. That's who I belong to, the tribe that I am a part of. And you would rally to that place and you would fight together. And, and by the way, we have a school about a mile or so down the road for those of you who didn't know it. And if you were to hang a ride on Camino San Bernardo and pull into Maranatha Christian School's campus, you could walk into the gym and you'd see banners plastered around our gymnasium. And they have the Maranatha Eagle emblazoned on them. They have our name. And we rally around that identity. We are the Eagles. We are part of this Maranatha community. And then you'd see other banners that remind the students of past victories. CIF title for girls basketball from a year ago. My daughter was on the team, just throwing that out there. And uh, you'd see other banners that highlight what our boys' soccer team has done and, and championships that we've won. And that infuses the students with confidence. I am part of a community, and I am part of a history where we win. And God says, I'm your banner. And as you look throughout your history, I want you to root your identity in me. And I also want you to raise a banner over every victory that I've given you in your life. Everybody, raise your hands and wave them around if the Lord has given you victory at some point in time. Look at all those hands. You all have some banners hanging in the rafters of the halls of your heart. God has brought you through some things. He's given you victory in some areas. And those banners infuse you with confidence that the Lord who fought for you will fight for you again. So the next time you feel like you're being ambushed by the enemy, can I just encourage you to look up to the Lord who is your banner. We have one who is on the hill. He's the greater than Moses. Moses stood up on the hill with arms outstretched, and he's attached to a piece of timber that secures the victory for Joshua. We come to Jesus. We look to the hill called Calvary, and we see his arms outstretched on another piece of timber. And in that scene, we're reminded that our victory Victory is rooted in the cross. At Calvary's cross, Jesus overcame every foe, every enemy, every attack, death, hell, Satan. They've all been defeated through the cross of Jesus. Now, make no mistake about it, you're going to still face some battles in this life. Amen. But, 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 and I'm so thankful for this but in Scripture. 1 Corinthians 15, 57 says, But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Someone say amen. amen. And after Jesus defeated our enemies, you know what the Bible says he did? He ascended, he led captivity on high, and he ascended to the right hand of the Father, where according to Hebrews 7.25, he now ever lives to make intercession for us. I lift my eyes up unto the mountains, from whence cometh my help. My help comes from you, the maker of heaven. We lift our eyes above the battle. Don't get caught up in the fog of war, you lift your eyes to the hill called Calvary. You see the timber, not just the staff of Moses, but the cross of Jesus. You recognize your victory is rooted in him. And then you look your eyes up even further and you realize that Jesus is praying for you. We can't lose. His arms never grow weary. No enemy can withstand you. No problem can defeat you. No foe can deter you. The battles may be tough, but your victory is assured because he fights for you. 
Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.